Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for November 17th, 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly. What are we doing here? Well, Joe, we're going to have a discussion. We're going to examine certain issues, hopefully, that we have adequately researched and certainly in good faith. Yeah, and in that good faith, in that knowledge that we have, you know, we, we acknowledge that we are only human. We don't know everything. We are not on the ivory tower. We, we do not know of all above everyone else. So anyway, 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 Evan. What do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, I know we talk a lot about the Democratic primaries in terms of the candidates, some policies, some polling results. But I want to talk about the order of the Democratic presidential primaries. Ooh. So for a little bit of overview, the first step in the Democratic primary process will come on February 3rd with the Iowa caucus. New Hampshire primary is next on February 11th. On February 22nd is the Nevada caucus. February 29th hosts the South Carolina primary. And then March 3rd is Super Tuesday, where there will be... Super Tuesday. Coming at you. Really, though, that's... On Tuesday. On a Tuesday every time. 14 state primaries are run, especially uh, big states like California and Texas go on Super Tuesday. And so by then, the majority of the primary has been concluded by Super Tuesday. But those four states get in a little bit sooner, and they actually end up having a little bit more power in the nominating process for reasons that we'll go into. So I want to look at how... It was determined that those states get to go first and what that means for the shape of the primary. <laughs> uh, I, I laugh because I I know why these happen. And it's not like the Democrats got together and were like, hey, we're going to do this first. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, exactly. The states pick when they go. Um, yeah. There have been attempts by the National Party to shorten the election cycle and to try to set some sort of schedule, but ultimately it's up to the individual state Democratic parties to determine when they want to hold their primary or caucus. So I just wanted to get into the history of just one of them, the Iowa caucus, and look at the timeline of changes for that a little bit. In 1968, the Democratic National Convention was highly fraught. There were a lot of protests, and a lot of state Democratic parties in the wake of that felt the need to reform their own primary or caucus procedures. So the reforms in Iowa required more paperwork and more coordination between different locations And so in order to make sure that they had enough time to accomplish all this, they had to boost their primary up, making it the first primary, or in this case, caucus in the nation. In 1972, the George McGovern campaign, spearheaded by a young politician named Gary Hart, who astute viewers or listeners, rather, will probably recognize the name of, 
decided that since Iowa was first, that it should become a main target. And it worked so well for McGovern, at least in the primary. Obviously, general election was a different story. But because it worked so well for him, yeah, right. Because it worked so well for him in the primary, this became the new norm that translated to this day. In 1983, New Hampshire moved up their primary to try and steal the thunder of Iowa and just to be the ones who are first in the nation. So Iowa just moved theirs up even further in spite of being assigned a date by the Democratic National Committee. It it didn't matter and Iowa could move the primary Again, Iowa's caucus, but I use the word primary interchangeably, even though they're not the same. But the Iowa caucus. And yeah, it's the it's the primarying process for the, the nomination. But each state can hold a primary or a caucus or some other version of collective uh, uh, opinion setting. Correct. So it, it's kind of like how people are like. America is not a democracy, it's a republic. And it's like, well, a republic's a form of democracy. So, yeah. Yeah, te- technicalities. So anyway, Iowa caucus was moved up to beat New Hampshire out. And today, the people of Iowa, and especially the, the, the powers that be within the Iowa Democratic Party, are reluctant to try to give up that first slot. They say it's to preserve the tradition, but I think it's really to preserve that unique power that being first holds within the rest of the primary. And here's why it matters. Here's why they have that unique power as a an early state. One of the key questions that is asked about every candidate who's running is, are they electable? Electability is hugely important to voters who want to see their supported candidate go on to win in a general election. And until you get to a primary or caucus, it's kind of speculative as to who's electable and who's not. So if you can win or at least do well in an early state such as Iowa, it can be a big boost very quickly to your campaign for everyone except Howard Dean. (laughs) Joe, please edit in the Howard Dean scream, please. Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. It's crazy to think that that ended his campaign. (laughs) Yeah. Like, in the modern era, it is hard to believe that that was a thing that was controversial. Yeah, that a stupid soundbite. Like, 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 you know, we had Beto O'Rourke, who was taken way more seriously than his numbers ever showed. And he's like, and we're going to fucking take it to them. And everyone goes, and and nobody ever talks about it, which they don't really need to. But it's just funny. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if maybe if Beto's soundbite had come once the, the primaries had actually started, then 
maybe things would be different. But yeah, Howard, Howard Dean's a weird case. I, I don't have a full context on him. I Just for now, I, I'm happy with him as a punchline. He, he hadn't learned the lesson that if you don't show shame for what happened, you do. Then there's nothing anybody can do to stop you. <laughs> But anyway, let's go on. Now that we know why it matters what states go first, it's important to question if the current system of which states get to go first makes sense. And this has come up recently from presidential hopeful Julian Castro, who has been harshly critical of the ordering of the current Democratic primaries and caucuses. If the early states that determine who is and isn't electable are not good demographic models for the rest of the country, we might be allowing certain voices to have a greater say in the conversation than marginalized voices. And I did some statistical research here, and from the 2018 census update, it's not a full census, but the U.S. Census Bureau keeps data on an annual basis as well. 2018 is the most recent year for which there's data. Here are the overall demographics for the United States, just broken down along lines of white and then Hispanic, Latino, and African American. As a whole, the United States is 60.4% white, 18.3% Hispanic and Latino, and 13.4% black and African American. Iowa, the first state to hold its primary or caucus, and therefore the one that has the most say in who is and isn't electable in the early stage, is 85.3% white, only 6.2% Hispanic and Latino, and only 4% black. New Hampshire is even less diverse, being 90% white, only 3.9% Hispanic and Latino, and 1.7% black. When we get to Nevada, we find that the Hispanic and Latino ratio goes up, but we still don't have adequate representation of African Americans. Nevada is 48.7% white, 29% Hispanic Latino, and 10.1% African American. Then in South Carolina, that is reversed. South Carolina is 63.7% white, but only 5.8% Hispanic and Latino, and then 27.1% black. So of all the states before Super Tuesday, only one has nationally representative demographic representation of Hispanic and Latino voters, and only one has adequate demographic, demographic representation for black voters. And the first two states, arguably the two most important states of Iowa and New Hampshire, both completely failed to reflect the diversity of the country. Yeah, it's a valid concern, although kind of in a pushback kind of way. I wonder if it really ends up skewing votes to, at least in the Democratic Party, towards... Um, greater whiter interest it, it doesn't seem like at least in the democratic primary process who ends up being the nominee in the past you know 20 or so years there really hasn't been a candidate who's alienated the minority 
constituencies. I mean, there was Barack Obama, um, Hillary Clinton. I mean, she definitely had her issues, but it there wasn't a whole scale uh, rejection by any particular group. John Kerry. So maybe there's a greater interest in white candidates. I mean that. I mean, but then there's also Obama. But I, you know, it's something we could strive to being. But it, it, to me, at least right now, it doesn't seem like something that's completely broken. Well, I think that it's it's almost impossible to tell from a result standpoint if it's broken or not. I think this is one of the things where we can kind of judge it based on what what we can tell from how it's set up. We, you, you and I don't know of of candidates alienating minority voters but if if minority voters aren't given adequate representation in the early states we may never hear those reports it's to me it's not about a candidate who comes out and and flagrantly offends a certain group of voters it's just about making sure that early states actually reflect if, if we're going to take early states as a measure of electability, which is inevitable, then the states that do go early should be more representative of our national demographics. Well, if we were to... I'm also just thinking, so the primary process is, is a... As far as American politics go, it's a relatively new process. It really only began in about the late 60s, early 70s. Um, it used to be that the candidate for each party was just chosen by the uh, party insiders, a bunch of guys in smoke-filled back rooms that we all have heard about. Yeah, the, um, the proverbial smoke-filled back room that has captured yeah. the imagination. Yeah. And there isn't a prescribed national system for primarying. So... And, and it's it's odd how elections work in the United States. So everything is diffused. Everything is decided at, like, the state level. It's not like um, the national government says, these are the candidates for president. States actually get to decide, you know, who's on the ballot in each state and how they get to choose how to apportion their electoral votes and how they get to do their, demo- or their primary process. So... And the reason we ended up with the system and the order we have is because individual states made their individual choices about when they want to have their individual primaries or caucuses. So, the, and it definitely seems like in, in the face of what should happen and what is happening, there is a huge power gap. Um, now, that doesn't say, I'm not saying we can't talk about it, but I'm just explaining kind of how it is right now. Iowa's first because Iowa wants to be first. And and it's taken up the imagination of people. It's something that ha- seems to happen a lot in society where we got a result. We have a system that's just the way it is because some people decided it based on nothing. And then we work backwards to try and justify it. Like nobody... Nobody, when uh, the primarying process started happening around the late 60s, early 70s, was like, you know what? Iowa needs to be first. That's the place we're going to figure out where the pres, 
you know, the, the first take on who should be president of the United States. Nobody, nobody thought that Iowa was just like, yeah, we're going first. And then also speaking to demographics information, Illinois is actually the state in the country that has demographics across race, across income, across population that most closely matches the United States as a whole. So there have been some arguments that the first state to go in the primary process is Illinois, but maybe I'm a little biased. Possibly, but it does make a lot of sense. The most difficult challenge we face is that since there is no national governing body, obviously the DNC can make recommendations, but as we've seen with the Iowa-New Hampshire feud of 1983, the DNC recommendations don't really mean anything. And so without a larger governing body, there's no incentive for states to accept that they are not demographic matches for the country and step back. And that's what it would really take to fix this would be for Iowa to voluntarily move back in the queue. But I don't know why they would, from their perspective, I don't know why they would want to do that other than a a vague commitment to this broader ideal. It's fierce enough that even if, let's say, Illinois moved their primary process up to a date before Iowa, both Iowa and New Hampshire have it in their laws that they are first so that they will move their primary up to be first no matter what. Well, there you go. So so if Illinois moved their primary up, both uh, Iowa and New Hampshire would move their dates up to be before that. Now, there could maybe be uh, a little fun controversy if a state that does caucuses moved in between the slot between Iowa and New Hampshire because New Hampshire has it in their law that they will only be the first primary instead of a caucus. So that's why they're second. But that would just be, I mean, that would yield nothing, but it's just kind of a, ooh, what would happen? Yeah, it, it's a potential workaround if some state really wanted to to get up in there. So Illinois just has to have a con- switch to a caucus and then have it in between Iowa and New Hampshire. All right, solved that we one. We found a workaround. Yep, we got to fundamentally change a lot of politics. (laughs) I just find it really interesting how this process, as you said, just sort of so arbitrarily became entrenched, and now it's almost impossible to change it, even though there are tangible harms associated with the lack of representation in early states but it's tough I mean, to fix isn't that kind of the Amer- isn't that the american way making decisions kind of on the fly not realizing how important they are finding out years later that they are important and then backwards ra- rationalizing them at after that yeah yeah it pretty much is yeah. sounds pretty on the nose for me yeah it uh doesn't seem like anybody would pick Iowa, but then 
if we keep this process going on like it has been, it's going to be like, you know, part of the the joke of American elections. Then all the candidates go off to Iowa. This sacred ground is where the first people will choose who they want to be president. And, you know, like some British documentary about it. Yeah, it narrated also rem- by Richard Attenborough. Yeah. Um, it also kind of, re- I, I don't know if I'll keep this in, but it reminds me of that joke I saw on Twitter about Brexit. And it's like, the year is 2193. The Prime Minister of Britain goes to Brussels to ask the European Union for an extension on the Brexit deal. People from all around the world come and observe this tradition. Nobody knows where it started. Nobody knows what it means, but it happens every year nonetheless. <laughs> and that, that's uh, kinda that kind of feels trending. like the Iowa yeah. caucus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows if we'll change the primary process. It seems like we're at a juncture where nobody's quite, there isn't a fervent interest in changing the greater systems of our democracy we have a belief that it's all good and well and we can't we can't improve on it or it is already perfect so who knows when the next change to the uh, presidential primary process will be certainly not i but i think that we've covered what there is to cover Primaries, caucuses, bears, oh my. So, Joe. What do you think? Yeah, what do you think, guys? You can email the podcast, or if you're not about emails, uh, leave a comment wherever you watch, and let's start some discussion. I I really want to see some more of that. That's been my favorite part of this whole experience, has been being able to talk about the ideas we present here. I really value everyone who listens. I value your thoughts. So if you send us an email, we will listen or we will read it. Currently, we are getting more emails from Twitter than we are from people. Wow. We're getting emails from Twitter. Yeah, I I signed up our Twitter. We do have a Twitter. Um, We do not active all that much. You and I are two of its three followers. So, yes, we are. That is damn straight. So if you're Um, on Twitter, follow the account. Follow me. You can try to follow me. I have a private account, but I will I will approve your request. I am public. I am open. Let the world see my tweets. So, Joe, what do you want to talk about? Oh, geez, Evan. I don't know what I want to talk about, but I do know what I want to talk about. We're going to talk about our favorite person. Not even our most, most favorite person, but one of them, Bill Maher. So, this may just end up being a winding rant. Maybe it's not the most adequately informed. Maybe it's not even in the most good faith. But I'm going to acknowledge that up front. And maybe that makes it better? I don't know. So Bill Maher is a comedian, I guess. Um, He hosts a show on HBO called Real Time with Bill Maher. And on Real Time with Bill Maher, he has real discussions with real intellectuals saying real things that the other people aren't going to say. And there have been times where I've watched Bill Maher and I thought, oh, this is funny. This is 
this is cutting, this is saying something. Um, it was kind of around when Trump was elected and I was looking for anything to confirm that in my eyes, this is bonkers. And he was helping that. But on normal times, he is about the most smug liberal of all time. He's the not have a positive image of the world. It's man. Isn't everybody just fucking stupid version of liberals, which I do not like. I try not to be that because where does that get us? How do you be the people of the people if you shit on the people? But anyway, I'd hesitate even to call him a liberal in many senses of the word. Yeah, that's another thing. Um, this 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 rant was inspired by a video made by the YouTube channel Some More News where the host goes into detail about what Bill Maher is doing. And the, the kind of thesis of it is either Bill Maher needs to keep, try harder or he just needs to stop. He used to be liberal, but now he just... He's trying to stake out the kind of like the Dave Rubin grift of, yeah, I'm a liberal, but these guys are going too far, uh, stake. But most of this was kicked off a few weeks ago. Bill Maher had a segment on his show where the thesis of it was that fat shaming should make a return. And that it just seemed so not adequately informed. Like the guy as the I am smarter than everybody else, quote liberal. He he did no research on his subject. It was purely opinion. Now, I'm doing pure opinion now, but I'm trying to preface it that it is. He has this belief that. Everyone who's fat is doing it just because they're fucking lazy and they don't know how to control their lives and that we shouldn't stop. We should stop um, talking to people or giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, we don't give smokers a free ride. Why should we give fat people a free ride? And because of that, we're bringing down the healthcare system. So should we be giving health care to people who are fat, which is an actual question he posed at some point? Um, so it just and I am a fat person. I, I'll acknowledge it. Fat shaming doesn't do anything. I mean, living life as a fat person is shaming enough. I don't need other people to tell me that it's fucking bad. I already know it's bad. Every time I go to a restaurant and the tables are fixed, I, n I realize that I'm fat. Every time I go to a clothing store and they don't have clothes that fit me, I realize that I'm fat. Every time I sit in a chair and it creaks a little bit, I'm reminded that I'm fat. Every time I try and get in and out of my car, I'm reminded that I'm fat and out of shape. I don't need more reminders about it. And it's not going to... Like, if all of my friends just made me a social outcast because I'm fat and in order to help me better, uh, make better decisions in my life, I wouldn't make better decisions in my life. I'd probably just eat more. That's, that's, um, I think the, the most important finding that has been found when 
this is studied scientifically is that to harass or otherwise shame someone who is fat it's always done under the guise of well they need tough love they have to recognize this reality but every all of the research has shown that doing so actually is just it hurts the emotional state of of the people who are shamed which does cause them to eat more so if your goal is to help fat people you would not fat shame them because we know that that has the reverse effect yeah but it's not about that it's about superiority and bill maher is all about superiority and and smugness when it's not earned yeah everybody needs to be eating locally sourced kale eating goat cheese on multi-grain bread i'm just trying to think of you know i've watched stuff with bill maher and over the years and you know what he chooses to eat like he's very conscious about what he eats and he's been afforded that because he (laughs) he has money he can have other people worry about that in his life so that he doesn't have to um, now this doesn't you know what mean else? that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. If you've got. No, no, no. You go. Oh, ahead. Okay. Bill Maher's not a doctor. He is not. Even if he's conscious about what he eats, he's not a weight loss professional. There's no. so much. There's. It seems like whenever fat shaming comes up, there's this inherent link to pseudo medical claims that the people making it are not qualified to back up. Well, another part of the video was um, Bill Maher's anti-vaccine preference or ideas. He has some of those floating around that vaccines can be harmful to people, that he is being a rogue by saying it. And that is just also not scientific. He's also anti-GMO, which, you know, I can understand some people's concerns, but the scientific consensus is they're fine, um, at least in the current form that they exist in. So he really just wants to feel elite. That's that's most of Bill Maher's shtick is he wants to be an elitist. He is the guy who reads the New York Times because it's an elite thing to do to read the New York Times. Not because, you know, it's a publication, a great publication, or he feels that it's uh, real worthwhile. He reads it because of the status. He, he, uh, he eats, he's part of the new class that eats, you know, super healthy because that's what um, the elite do. They take care of the, you know, they think, oh, we're taking care of ourselves, which they are, but that they're better than other people because other people don't. And also another layer is that in like, so before he was on real time, he had the show on ABC called Politically Incorrect, which was the like one of the first iterations of anti-PC, you know, uh, media. So because he has a strong bend against political correctness, and because of that, on his show, he has a lot of questionable guests who join in on his 
hatred of political correctness. And like there's one way of having people on to debate them, but he brings them on in support. Like at one point he brought Milo Yiannopoulos on extreme grifter and Bill Maher during his time with him didn't debate him. Well, maybe he did some debate, but didn't, you know, specifically call him out for things. He like praised him for being a warrior against the whiny liberals. And it's just, it's not super great. My favorite uh, aspect of Bill Maher's debate me type ideology is that in the rare instances where he does have someone on, he has a, a couple of gotcha points that he thinks he can make. And then if someone is able to refute them, he has nothing. And this has especially been true whenever he thinks he's going to have a gotcha moment against someone who he brings on to talk about religion. Look this up on YouTube, guys, if you're interested. It's, it's incredible. If someone is able to get past his first line of defense, he is stymied, and he repeats himself, he doesn't think on his feet well, he just uses his bully pulpit and then pats himself on the back. I'm very anti-Bill Maher. I know that this this all started as, as Joe's topic and, and more of Joe's axe to grind, but I've... Uh, if, if Oh, if grind your axe. Yeah, if, if we value good faith and considering ideas fully and fairly, Bill Maher is the antithesis of what we stand for. Yes. You know, sometimes we may agree with him. But not usually, <laughs> not usually. No, but even then it's not worthwhile to align with him. And it's funny that he cries so much about leftist political correctness and cancel culture because his original show politically incorrect was canceled for saying something <laughs> controversial and it wasn't the leftists. It wasn't some social justice warriors. He didn't say something about tr bad about trans people. He didn't say something bad about black people. He didn't say some uh, stereotype about Mexican people. He didn't say something bad in leftist circles. You know what he said? He said he compared how people were calling the. 9-11 um, bombers cowards for flying a plane into a building. But he called the United States government cowards for sending bombs 2,000 miles or missiles 2,000 miles across the globe while sacrificing nothing to kill these people. And his show got canceled for that. Actually canceled for going against right-wing speech. So... It wasn't the leftists. It wasn't some college kids. It wasn't some uh, drag queen or whatever stereotype or it is for the people. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever does the the canceling in our culture. It was the American government at the time and its choices to go to war and the patriotism that erupted from that or nationalism, if you want to call it that. Or jingoism. Jingo. 
So, Bill Maher, he is not within the ethos of adequately informed. He does not seem to be adequately informed just as a base value. He does not seem to come at issues with good faith. Like, he cannot get over religion. Like, yeah, I know there was... There were some Christians who are hypocrites, but that doesn't mean everyone who's religious is a loon. So he does not act in good faith, and he totally believes he's in the ivory tower, looking down upon the people, saying that he's better than everyone else because he eats his goat cheese on multigrain bread. Locally sourced. So... Bill Maher. If you want to come on the podcast, that'd be great. Yeah, you know. <laughs> if if uh, if this gets inflammatory enough and it gets around to you, you know, come come on. Come tell us we're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Argue us in good faith. Tell us how about how vaccine denialism is in good faith. Tell us about how promoting fat shaming is in good faith. Tell us about how we tell tell us about saying every Islamic person is tolerating jihadism and it's inherent to the religion. Tell us why. Tell us why it's in good faith. And it can't be just this is the real stuff that people don't want to say. We don't want to say it because we don't think it's correct. Yeah, there's not I'll, adequate evidence. I will hold any position if I think that there's a good amount of information to back it up and it achieves whatever uh, societal goals or personal goals that it sets out to accomplish. But if it doesn't, then I'm not about it. I like evidence. Tune in next week when we say the exact same thing but substitute out Bill Maher's name and put in Ben Shapiro. And then tune in the week after that when we take out Ben Shapiro and we put in Dave Rubin. And that's it. That's the end of our series of dunking on, guys. Yeah. Donk. We're donking on them. But anyway, so, Evan, what what's our uh, main topic today? Well, we're going to talk about some of the things that are most central to the American experience. We're going to talk about class. We're going to talk about billionaires. And the American dream. The American dream. Yeah, those all go together, right? Yes. So where where to start? Where to start? Um, so these topics have been, uh, they've been percolating mostly due to the Democratic primary going on. The ideas of what does class mean in the 21st century? What place does society have for billionaires? And what does the American dream actually mean? Is the American dream that if you work hard, you can have a nice middle class life? Or is the American dream that you can work hard and become a billionaire? It seems like we've had some concept drift, definition drift over the years. But billionaires, billionaires, they have a lot of money. And so much money that it's hard to comprehend. So, Evan, what would you say is an amount of money somebody would have in income 
for a yearly income for them to be considered wealthy? $100,000. So if we take a billion dollars and divide it by 100,000, we get 10,000. You would have to earn $100,000 for 10,000 years to have made a billion dollars. Like, if you just got a dollar for every magnitude more money that you would need from $100,000, you would have 10% more money. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, a, a billion dollars is so much more money than most people could realistically make, could ever realistically spend. And as a portion of society, they're small. You know, the United States has the highest number of billionaires in the world. There's 585. One billionaire for every 560,000 people. But man, they just have so much more than everybody else. And there's been question in the Democratic primary, kind of one, should... Well, there's a kind of consensus that billionaires need to be taxed more. But how much more? And it should it be their income or their wealth? And then there's a separate question of, should there be any billionaires at all? So, Evan, what are, what are your thoughts on those? I think that billionaires should exist to the extent that they are able to contribute to a functioning society. So if someone is extraordinarily wealthy and they continue to use that wealth in ways that benefit the common good and after paying their taxes at a fair progressive rate, they still have over a billion dollars, that's fine with me. I think that as Bernie Sanders and others have said that billionaires are a policy failure, I think that's sort of an arbitrary line to say $1 billion is, is the cap of how much a person should have. I think that if, if, if someone is making a lot of money or has a lot of money and wealth and we apply a fair tax rate and they end up not hitting a billionaire status anymore then that's fine, but if they are still a billionaire, I don't want to just confiscate money to get everyone below a billionaire threshold. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of like uh, after the case. Deciding, yeah. oh, like if we had decided long ago that um, there would be high taxes and it would to discourage people from having incredibly large sums of money before they earned them, That'd be one thing, but then going and confiscating wealth—that's a—that's a who—that's a, a whole another thing. Well, arbitrary confiscation yeah. at, at just some cutoff. Where I right. get where where I get more frustrated is when people are just sitting on money, or you know, managing an estate or a fortune, not really contributing jobs, not contributing to the common good. And a big thing for me is inheritances. I think the idea that 
anyone can be a billionaire through inheritance is it's it's pretty perverse to me and mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me from a policy perspective and i i understand the plight that people have where they're like well a person can't leave their money for their their children well yes they can but when before the the republican tax bill of what was it now 2017 sounds right they, yeah there was an estate tax in the united states and it only kicked in after 10.3 million dollars and i don't know about you but i don't think there's anyone who's listening to this who would scoff at 10.3 million dollars tax free yeah. it's not leaving these kids in a disadvantaged place it's not leaving these kids in a significantly lower class than before and also we're uh, saying kids but it's adults too people who yeah if we're adhering to we'll, we'll tip our hand a little bit on american dream but if, if the american dream is about making your own way these are people who have already had their chance to make their own way and yeah. we want to we want to hand over money that someone else earned tax-free makes no sense yeah I mean, it's giving the children an immense income and we tax income, but it's just weird how we infantilize the children of extremely rich and powerful people. Like there have been in times when during scandals with the Trump administration, Donald Trump Jr. has been involved and they're like, ah, he's he does he he's new, he's young, he doesn't know what's going on. And the dude's like forty. Yeah. <laughs> like, at what point is like he an adult? If he was the son of a piss poor man, well, he wouldn't even be considered the child of his parents. He would just be himself. Yeah. Um, Ch- adulthood starts a lot earlier. The lower you go down on the socioeconomic spectrum. True. So. These people who are the inheritors of extreme wealth aren't going without. And sure, maybe there's a question of whether they would ever earn that money to begin with. But I mean, people, people want to earn money. <laughs> I don't know if there is a taxation scheme that's less than taxing 100% of income from the first dollar you earn that would make people not want to work to earn money. Mm-hmm. Like even if you taxed like billionaires at 90% for everything over a billion they earn, they would still be trying to earn money. And, and when you get to that high level of achievement, do you think Bill Gates is really worried about making the, the difference between making 90 billion and 100 billion dollars or do you mm-hmm. think that he has different professional and intellectual goals a- after you have enough money is money even a big significant motivating factor right they 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 do what they do because they want it want to do it not because, oh, man, I'm going to get so much more money out of it. Like, for Bill Gates, 
what's another $10 billion? I know this is a weird question, but like if he just got $10 billion more richer tonight, would anything in his life change? I I, I would be skeptical. Doubtful. Yeah. Yeah. Because remember and, the, the two... Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Okay, just the, the two... The, the two sort of tests for taxation for me remember that if we're operating in a collective society we need taxation in order to provide for the common good and we have a legal and moral right to do that so the two tests are one does it prevent does a tax prevent someone from being able to meet their needs and when we're talking about taxes on billionaires the answer is obviously no and mm -hmm. the second test is, will this tax disincentivize someone from acting in a way that benefits the common good? And again, we're, we're being fairly speculative here, but I, I, I think it's mostly accurate that in extreme cases, the money is not the motivating factor anyway. So levying a higher tax would not really stifle innovation at the very highest levels, mm -hmm. as is being proposed. Or, or what if everything was shifted, like, like by everything? So everything was a tenth of what it is now. Like, what if Elon Musk had, I don't know, nine hundred million dollars, and he was really working towards getting, you know, one point seven five billion dollars or something like that that people would still be working for that change um it, it's just that the scale that it's on right now is just ridiculous um mm -hmm. like yes there are going to be wealthy people we're not we're not communist we're not thinking everybody needs to be the same which communists didn't even truly think but that's a that's a a, 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 a discussion for another day um, but just the crazy levels of wealth of some of these people, like no, I mean, Bill Gates hasn't even been working for 20 years and his net worth has doubled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it, it's not like he's been out there on the forefront of innovation of his industry. Yeah. He's done a lot of charity work, but it's not. It's not been, he hasn't done a whole lot of work to at double his wealth over the past 20 years or so. Um, well, that's the other important thing to remember is that wealth replicates itself. That's the premise of Piketty, right? R greater than G equals inequality, where R is the rate of return on capital and G is economic growth. And... For almost all of human history, the statement R greater than G has been true. The only time where it hasn't been true was a brief period post-World War II when there was a huge economic recovery rebuilding after the war on a global scale, essentially. Mm -hmm. But besides that one snapshot in history, we've learned that wealth replicates itself and that takes different forms nowadays it's money managers who can shrewdly invest and and grow capital 
seemingly exponentially, as you mentioned in the case of Bill Gates, where he's he stopped working in his main field, but still has seen an explosion in his personal wealth. Mm. So that needs to be corrected. If it makes more sense, if, if it's more economically valuable to have money and then watch that money go to work than to actually produce something, it seems like a misalignment of incentive. Mm-hmm. And it also just seems like there's this real rooting for the hard work that people believe billionaires do. Now, I believe there are some billionaires out there who work really hard for their money. But is their labor worth that much more than everybody else, like on a human level? Like maybe in an economic sense it is, but is is economic value similar to human value? And I oftentimes think, I it, no, that's why I believe in, you know, helping the poor with stuff and being able to afford things because even though they may not be able to derive economic value, they're, they have human value. And this um, economic versus human value is obviously highly subjective, but I think the important takeaway is that it's a choice and we can yeah. choose to, to foreground the human value and there's no law of nature that says we have to foreground the economic value. Yeah. And and there's just this idea that uh, back to billionaires working hard. You know, there's lots of people who work very very hard at jobs that they don't make a lot of money at. It seems to be that billionaires come around because they were at the right place at the right time with the right idea and the right set of um, skills. That's mm-hmm. that's where billionaires come from. They do. There is a big part of making, you know, building companies, making the right decisions. But then there also has to be this other part that's kind of luck. You know, if Elon Musk had tried to make a solar company 30 years ago, there's a good chance that he wouldn't have succeeded. There wasn't people didn't feel the need for it. There weren't investors looking at it. Oil was relatively cheap at the time, and there was no way that people would have thought, oh, this is going to be the future. This is just some little side project that, you know, the environmentalists are trying to do or. If uh, Mark Zuckerberg had come around at the wrong time and didn't have the and his little uh, stupid college website that was essentially hot or not didn't take off like he wouldn't be a billionaire or Bill Gates. He happened to be a nerdy kid at a time right at the beginning of personal computing and was able to be one of the first people to build an operating system for these computers that could be on your desk. So, yes, there is a level of building these companies, building their wells, wealths, building up the systems that they uh, that are very valuable to society. But then there's also just a massive luck component to it. 
Yeah, um, and it's luck in this very broad sense that we often don't consider. And I think this is where Malcolm Gladwell comes in, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. in trying to process our lives as a function of not only our individual attributes, but also our place in history. And a lot of times there's the tendency to demonize people who succeed but it's not about that not not for me and not for joe at least it's about just recognizing that we we share a society and when we succeed in addition to our hard work and all of the good stuff that we do we are also beneficiaries of the society which produced us mm-hmm and I think of someone like Michael Jordan, fantastic athlete, but clearly most successful at basketball. Michael Jordan is one of the most, his, his name is synonymous with greatness in all, whenever you're talking about someone being really good at something, you say they're the Michael Jordan of their field. Arguably mm -hmm. the most successful person in recent memory what if he was born same attributes and everything in a time where you couldn't make millions of dollars putting an orange ball through a hoop yeah would we would we know the name what if he had born been born just two or three years earlier sure or even a few for, for my little train of thought here we have to say maybe a few decades earlier when basketball was not as popular and ingrained in the culture as it was, it's entirely likely that Michael Jordan never would have pursued basketball and would have put his efforts into baseball. And we know that mm -hmm. that didn't work well for him. Yeah. Or, so the difference, you know, the difference between Michael Jordan, the name synonymous with greatness in all fields, and Michael Jordan, the burnout AAA baseball player, is the timing of his birth. I mean, there's also the question of, you know, if it wasn't for basketball or just born in a different decade, would he have even pursued sports at all? Sure. Like, I mean, um, race has something to do with it. The The economic viability of sports has to do with it. The belief that, you know, you could go and be something to be part of it has something to do with it. He was at the right place. At, he was the right guy at the right place at the right time. These and opportunities then, aren't open for forever. Yes. And of course, with that opportunity, he still took advantage of it and did more than even people with the same opportunity. Again, we're not communists. Surprise, this isn't a communist podcast. We're not trying <laughs> to knock Michael Jordan or the proverbial Michael Jordan down to the level of the proverbial Muggsy Bogues. But... It's just about understanding the full context of what shapes our lives and disputing the notion that everything we ever get is owed to us as a function solely of ourselves and therefore it is an incursion to question the validity of amassed wealth. We, I mean, we already tax ourselves we already tax billionaires. 
And just the idea is that maybe they should be taxed a little bit more. They... And I think the there's a couple of other really important points here. Number one is that we're not taxing them more just to say we're taxing them more. But taking a small percentage of vast fortunes can raise really large quantities of revenue, which can then be spent on social programs which cause tangible positive benefits in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as much as people like to rag on it, food stamps does provide food for people. Mm -hmm. When they would otherwise struggle to have their lives exist in the same manner without it. And or if we expand, additional tax revenue could pay for housing first. It could pay theoretically for universal basic income, universal college tuition. There are things that if, if we have these resources within our country, it's fair to question how to selectively utilize these resources mm -hmm. and it's and again you know it the, the the example that goes around or has been going around is with bill gates because you know he's he's since he's retired he's not quite in his business anymore he's he uh he feels free to be able to talk about these issues so like he is worth 106 billion and he does a lot of philanthropy and he does a lot of good. But hell, what what is his life if he only has six billion dollars? Like, you know, maybe I'm not the person to make this argument. Maybe I'm just a small guy trying to punch up. But a six billion dollar like that's more wealth than I'll ever see in my life. Mm -hmm. That's more wealth than all of my friends accumulated wealth times you know it's still not even close to what that'll be so it's just a question of how far will we let some people become just so much more wealthy to have so much more than anybody else and i think and it's also oh go ahead to finish and then I'll, no I'll i don't have my i don't own i don't have i was gonna no yeah you go ahead. okay it's also important to remember that setting aside issues of fairness and who deserves what, societal inequality has uniquely, intrinsically negative effects in and of itself. And I'm going to be drawing a lot here from Keith Payne's The Broken Ladder, which is a very foundational book for me, and I recommend it to everyone. But the premise is that... It's hardwired into our human nature to make sure that we have enough. The problem is that the concept of enough is nebulous. We don't have any objective benchmark for what is enough. So we have to rely on subjective assessments. And we get these subjective assessments from looking around and seeing what is possible. So when we understand that people have much more than us, when levels of inequality are high, we feel on an implicit subconscious level threatened and it forces us or it forces some people into 
what's known as a scarcity mindset. And this scarcity mindset causes people to be less satisfied with life, which is why even in a rich society like the United States, we have such high levels of depression, anxiety, and another a number of other negative disorders and dysfunctions within our society. It causes people to make worse decisions and it generally decays societies from the inside out. We have tools to choose what levels of inequality exist within our society. And regardless of all other arguments, there's very strong evidence to suggest that simply reducing top-end inequality could have vast positive impacts on societal well-being. We just, uh, we just want people to live good lives. Don't have to be we the do. best life, just enough. And yeah, and I like that you use that word enough because it's so tough to tell what is enough. And I Mm -hmm. think sometimes it's helpful to just try to compare two worlds, a world in which we implement a certain policy and a world in which we don't. Because even if we don't have a good objective measuring stick for what is enough or what is good, it's pretty easy to see what's better. Yeah. It's pretty easy to see when things are improving or when things are deteriorating. And that can help us make decisions a lot more effectively. Mm-hmm. And then on another side of this is kind of wrapping in the American dream. Uh, let me search for something real quick. Who's the guy who was talking about, ah, the, okay. So in respect to the American dream, there was, this kind of came up because Elizabeth Warren has kind of been blasting billionaires, has um, recommended as part of her tax plan, a 6% wealth tax on all wealth over $50 million. And... There is this billionaire named Leon Cooperman who described Elizabeth Warren as wanting to kill the American dream. And I just find that preposterous. Has it come that the American dream is that if you work hard, you can be ultra wealthy? That that's the goal in our society? It it seemed like the goal of the American dream was that you could come have a um, decent middle class life and you could have that for your children as well and keep on some minor generational wealth. I don't recall hearing the American dream that you could come here and become a billionaire. Like, is this the new American dream? If so, I think it's kind of toxic, but I just, <laughs> the American dream, it, it, it's, it, it's, it shouldn't be that big. And wanting to tax billionaires should not be seen as wanting to kill the American dream. If anything, it could promote it more by giving more, more resources to people on the lower rungs so that they're able to climb the social ladder. I'm skeptical of 
any sort of discourse around the American dream or idealizing this American dream because it's safe to say that at best the American dream only selectively applies to small groups of people within the country at various narrow time points in this country's history. And I think that it's been used to justify systems of economic and racial oppression and otherwise cover up harsher realities about what American life really means. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to the extent that we have some sort of shared vision of an American dream, however problematic and idealized, I, I like your word choice, preposterous, that this extends to the absolutely inalienable right to hoard resources to the detriment of your fellow citizens. If we're going yeah. to talk about an American dream, the fact that we're calling it American and referring to our nationality and making an appeal to this patriotic term inherently requires it to be a collective dream Mm -hmm. for collective benefit. So I would agree that it's, it's not a good justification to say that a wealth tax violates the American dream. Yeah. You don't have an unalienable right to be ultra wealthy. Now that doesn't mean we're going to go and grab all that wealth from those people. But I do believe that people have the general right to be able to just live their lives a little bit, have food, have shelter, I mean, this gets back to our utopias and it seems like, and at some point it seems like having extreme wealth, um, at the hands of such few people is at odds of achieving a utopian vision. People can still be wealthy, but geez, they are so wealthy right now. Next week we should do a segment on our dystopian visions. <laughs> Along with the segment of what we're not adequately informed on. Yeah. So, unless you have anything else, I think that's about it. Um, it's chaos. So be kind. Be kind. Billionaires, you know, they do provide a lot to society, but not not as much as they could be. And then this is all premised on the idea that government programs are good, but oh boy, that's a big... We, we would have yeah. to have someone else to come in and debate us on that to have that <laughs> conversation. All right, let's bring him in. Do you, do you, uh, you feel strongly against these things that we're for? Let us know, please. We, we are not Bill Maher. We don't want to just hear ourselves talk. If, if, if you've got you know someone who is argument. against all of these and smart and can make adequately informed opinions that aren't just you're biased you're a um, socialist you're just a leftist um yeah let us know we'll 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 we would love to chat it is it is 
okay to disagree with us and we we would love to to have a dialogue that's what this is all about adequately informed is about a dialogue wu-tang is for the kids adequately informed is about the dialogue this episode has been brought to you by dialogue And I guess we'll start our uh, end segment, which is Rick and Morty. Season four premiere. Premiere. First episode. By the time this drops, there'll be a new one coming out tonight. Yeah. So, Evan, thoughts on it? I liked it. I thought that this was a strong episode. Um, Spoiler alert for those who haven't watched it yet. You've been warned. But there's the point after Rick is killed in the spaceship crash brought about by Morty's death crystal fetish that Rick and Morty's stories diverge. And I think that Morty's story gets a little bit lost for me. I mean, I know I know Rick and Morty is not a show that's overly concerned with morality, but it still seems like a big jump for Morty to become an Akira and to kill a <laughs> bunch of people. It, it, it still felt a little bit weird, but mm-hmm. Rick's story of having to be constantly reincarnated in the other dimensional Rick's bodies was classic Rick and Morty. A ton of funny jokes, good sight gags, um, Kirkland Brand Me Seeks is one of the funniest <laughs> jokes the show has ever told. I loved that. I laughed so hard. And once the storylines come back together, I think it resolves in an effective way. So I'm if if you're familiar with the work on my my uh, my site Midwestern Perspective, you'll know that I was highly critical of Rick and Morty season three. I found it to be very disappointing and problematic. But I'm very encouraged by the season four premiere. What did you think, Mm -hmm. Joe? I thought it was good. Um, I didn't have super strong thoughts because I had a long day of work. Um, So when I came (laughs) to watch it, I wasn't quite in the headspace to really enjoy it. And I also watched it alone, which seems to have an effect. I didn't dislike it, um, but I didn't have super strong feelings either way but again i i don't think i was quite in the headspace to fully enjoy it and have the full richness of opinions that i would normally like which ain't that a dandy do you have any standout moments or jokes or um the 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 twist at the end was nice oh and um, the the post credit scene yeah that was good i love it how every time in the show's history that Jessica has been like into Morty for whatever stupid reason. It's so over the top and stupid and he doesn't pick up on it (laughs) Um, or go with it. It's like, Hey, we're about to go skinny dipping right now. Let's go. You want to come? And he's like, nah, never mind. Flashing back to season one, when the the time when Jessica really shows any interest is act- after Rick makes that love potion and she's at the school dance saying, breed with me, Morty, mate with me for life. So, uh-huh. yeah, Morty, Morty and Jessica pretty much can only go to the extreme. Yeah, it, it's either banal interest or, ooh, fuck, it's it's big. So it's on. Yeah, 
I did like the uh, the all the different ricks. Um, yeah, that was uh, again that that's just a classic Rick and Morty concept. It's like oh, Rick's getting rebooted into all these different bodies that are way different Ricks. That was, and then he keeps going to fascist worlds. Yeah. <laughs> so. And he just he has to exclaim, "When did this become the default?" Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it was a it was a good episode. Nothing. I mean. It was a little deep with uh, the kind of philosophy behind seeing your own death. That was interesting with Morty um, and how it can be an illusion. I'm kind of reminded of an episode of American Dad where, for whatever reason, Roger has the power to see the future. And the whole family, it it lives in fear when they're not able to see the immediate future through Roger. So, um, yeah, we can be... We can be uh, slaves to the future when we can know what it is, but yeah, there's a liberation. Not knowing is human. Yeah. So I also like how fascist Morty sort of served as a surrogate for a very specific segment of the audience and their critiques of recent seasons and episodes of Rick and Morty. Where he says, you know, I hope this is the kind of strange that improves Rick and Morty. And then he says, you know, the old Rick was too political. I just want to go on classic Rick and Morty adventures. (laughs) He's sort of their way for the creators to poke fun at what they perceive as an overly demanding and whiny segment of the fan base. Yeah, we we don't want to be political. We just want... (laughs) Yeah. That's Although there's not many times where Rick and Morty does get overtly political, but I guess still too much for some people. Too much politics. Ooh, they may say someone has rights. Oh <laughs> fuck. Oh man, so, yeah. if 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 any of those people who don't like politics are still listening right now, good on ya for making it through this. Yeah. We 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 appreciate you. Um, there will never be adequately informed without politics. But, yeah, if you want to come along, have a fun, listen to us talk, that's always a good time, I think. Well, in our opinion. Yeah, I mean, we, we like to think we're making good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and let us know. Yeah. Let us know. Let us let us know if we're not. That could be that could be a fun comment section. Yeah. Tell us what we should do. Give us a comment. Here we go. Here we're 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 launching into the closing. The the drum beat is going. So if you know any any opinions about what we're doing, any at all, email us. Podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. Follow our Twitters. Tweet at us. Um, 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 Facebook. Tell us on Facebook. Thank Anthony Hish for the music. But really, tell us something. Yeah, this is our Hear third anything. plea. Our third plea. We really mean it. Anything. Have a thought. Give us something. Give, recommend a topic. We like it. <laughs> Post a link to your favorite Bob Dylan song. I, I'll like it if nothing else. Oh, it's a book to read. An article that would is a take on what we did. Something. 
ask us what our favorite Bill Maher is. Not that one, but just uh, we're here. We want to we want to grow this. We'd also ask that if you have the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us out in the algorithms and all that fun stuff. Recommend us to your friends. Um, get for them to give us a listen. Uh, we want to keep doing this, and if you like it, it help us keep doing it. So, yeah, we need we need help. Yeah, so we're little babies note, lying on our back in a crib. We need some help. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna keep doing it if you don't. But yeah, you know, it would just be nice if you did. So anyway, my name's Joe Hicks, and mine's not. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.